My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm drinking. I'm drinking a Jack Daniels because I need a Jack Daniels. The whole world is following the same script and it's very creepy. Extremely so. And that, uh, you know, that is like one of the main important observations really is that, mm. you know, normally we, we all have our cultural differences and Australia and the US actually are quite similar in many ways, uh, culturally, right? But we mm. still, we do our things our own way. And uh, in this situation, in the pandemic, it's like the policies are the same in every country. And, you know, it's unprecedented. I, I can't think of any such occasion where every country agrees. I mean, go look at a United Nations uh, meeting, yeah. you know, with all the countries. They can't agree on anything. So uh, it suggests, you know, that this is, of course, not business as usual and something very different is, is occurring right now. Um, in the United States, it's it's not as severe as it has been in several places in Australia that I've heard about. Um, California and the West Coast seems to be the worst, and that's the only place I know of where they had a curfew. I think people, by and large, did not follow it and they didn't enforce it uh, very strongly. So, like, people haven't been arrested, for example, that I know of except a few situations when they like kept their restaurant open and refused to close after the police put up signs and you know of course i applaud efforts like that because yeah, that's me too. the only thing that can change it so let's just assume that 190 countries are all just doing the same thing by sheer coincidence <laughs> Right. Well, you know, you could do a, a probability calculation on that, and I'm sure it would be, you know, equivalent to winning the lottery. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, by definition of conspiracy, right, which just means that more than one individual or entity mm. uh, enact a plan to carry out something. Right. So obviously the whole world being locked down is, is conspiratorial. Mm. By, by definition, every government act is is conspiratorial. Um, right. And here we have it between countries is mm. a conspiracy in this case, whereas if it's, you know, could be between members of parliament. Right. But that's what the word really means. And it comes from the uh, roots, meaning to breathe together. Sort of group think, you know, you're actually thinking critically. And that's something that COVID also uh, killed, as it turns out. Well, I think it was uh, really already dead, uh, to be honest with you, unfortunately. But, um, you know, what really I'm trying to do is I'm trying to expose the inadequacies, um, false assumptions, false findings, and, and actually outright fraud in some cases of the scientific establishment. Mm. Because all of the new policies are all uh, in the form of technocratic decisions. Right. Where we have scientific authorities who are advising the governments and the governments are doing what they say. Right. That's one way to look at mm. what's happening right now. And this is based on science that's false. And even the scientific establishment itself, like specifically Professor Ioannidis at Stanford University, but many others, it's mm. his paper about that saying more than half of all published scientific papers are false. Right. And he explains why in this paper. It's one of the most highly cited papers. So this is really from mainstream academia. But what mainstream academia likes to do is acknowledge their inadequacies, but then keep the status quo. And I think I'm challenging the status quo. I'm saying, you know, we're not going to accept this science. We're not just going to point out that a lot of it's wrong. We're actually not going to allow our lives to be changed mm. by false science. And I want to like this. It, it's really a crazy time because I was recently in a discussion online in a, a local neighborhood group. And there was a very high ranking person, a dean of a graduate school um, teaching future scientists. And we were trying to discuss evidence uh, related to, you know, policies like masks and things like that. And this so-called scientist um, wrote the following 
Asking for proof of something is an unreasonable standard in science. So it's, it's just completely astonishing. This is what we have in the leadership positions in the academic scientific institutions saying that you don't need proof. I mean, how anti-scientific could that be? Well, could we, could we play with semantics and say that proof you can only use in mathematics? Well, you know, um, much of science is uh, uses mathematics to do exactly that very thing, <laughs> right? But there's, you know, there's, um, there's proof of something and then there's, you know, absolute proof of something. Yes. And in other words, there are standards, right? Even in, a, in a, the court system, right? Uh, whether you think that provides justice or not, it still has rules about the degree of evidence that's mm. required. And sometimes you can't know, and so you make a decision based on, you know, what's available. But uh, if you have to make a decision, like let's say your health is at risk and there's no known treatments that have been scientifically proven, well, you might still take your chance on one because there's certain death, you know, if you don't do that, mm. right? So, but in, in other cases there, you know, it's not a desperate situation. <laughs> Most cases are not. Mm. And, uh, you know, if we let the scientific um, establishment mislead us, then we will do things that, that won't help and could be harmful. So it's really important to kind of establish, uh, you know, a certain degree of proof I would certainly welcome an opportunity to have a discussion with them about it and mm. if they can explain to me a different way to interpret it i'd certainly would be like i'm not emotionally attached to the truths that i've uncovered it's mm. just this is where the science has led me <laughs> right but right. i would be happy to change my mind because you know in the past i fully believed that viruses cause illness and as a physician, I wrote lots of prescriptions for antibiotics and, you know, told my family that they had a virus and all of this kind of thing. It, but at that time, I also never looked at, well, what, how, what are the scientific experiments they, they've done to see, like, what, what viruses are and such? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I looked there, you know, which was really last February, that I said to myself, what the heck is this? Like these experiments don't show viruses. They, they show essentially breakdown products of cells uh, because they create, they don't like take, you know, from a sick person, um, a body fluid or tissue and then purify out the virus from that and then show, oh, here's what the virus looks like and then take it apart and like analyze the constituents and sequence the RNA and things like that. Like all other um, discoveries of organisms have been like that, right? You, you know, when they discovered the jaguar, they took an actual jaguar, <laughs> mm. right? Observed it, dissected it, um, you know, looked at the hairs and stuff under a microscope, right, to see what they could learn from it. So they, they never do that. Uh, with, they've never done that with a virus, um, instead, they take the body fluid, you know, which has all kinds of junk in it. It's basically what your body's getting rid of because you're sick, um, you know, and it's got all kinds of cells and bacteria and schmutz in there. And they put that in a, in a cell culture with, with kidney cells from a monkey and add some other toxic chemicals. And then they see that the cells in that culture start degrading like like dying cells and when cells have been observed to die they put off all these particles and one of the particles they put off is called exosomes and there's a rich research around that and they've been able to purify exosomes <laughs> mm. right directly out of people's bodies like out of their blood or or lung fluid even i believe um so then they point you know an arrow to one of these particles and they say look there's the virus and you know, I said to myself, well, how do you know what that is? Like, you know that the particles are coming from the cell and the cells dying and there's no control experiment where they did everything the same, but put the snot from a healthy person. Mm. Um, if they did that, they would actually also have the same, you know, things that they find. 
And so it was really just perplexing, like, you know, mm. and I saw this for the current, you know, alleged virus at first. Um, and then I looked back in history. The wet markets in Wuhan. I mean, that's kind of a good starting point, isn't it? Yeah, well, of course, because, you know, that's what the mm. uh, official sources said is where, you know, the first cases uh, came from. Mm. Okay, so, you know, in the first paper, they had something like, you know, nine or 12 people that had pneumonia in the hospital, right? And, you know, well, that happens every year. So it's they somehow someone thought they had something in common that they all came from this market. But, you know, okay, well, so maybe there was some reason, like maybe they sprayed some disinfectants and all these people breathed it in. You know, maybe there was some kind of food poisoning that they got. Uh, you know, like if you saw pictures from that market, you'd see that they didn't weren't exactly super hygienic. There were like, mm. you know, parts of dead animals of all different varieties and blood everywhere. So it wouldn't be that surprising. You know, someone's whacking, you know, some bloody piece of meat with a, uh, a cleaver or something and it splashes up and it gets in people's nose and there and it turns out that animal was sick and the blood was, you know, toxic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, not from a germ, but just from like, you know, a disease from basically rotting flesh. Yeah. And, okay. And uh, then, yeah. And then suddenly you know, the Chinese government put out an official story and nobody really questioned it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think uh, Christian Drosten was uh, part of this mm. uh, process, too, because he developed this PCR primers that, yeah. without knowing anything about what was going on in China, <laughs> by the way, just because he had them in a database and he said, well, maybe this is an opportunity to make money or, or something. And, um, you know, they just went from like, oh, there's a few people sick. Maybe we should, uh, you know, send some people to investigate the market and, you know, or like keep an eye on people and see if other people get sick. They immediately jumped to, oh, this must be a virus. And mm -hmm. they started doing some G some genetic testing and, uh, you know, the genetic testing is all uh, it's all messed up. It's like, say, there's a rumor of some new uh, species of bear. And then you so and, you know, so you look for a piece of a bear that you already know. And <laughs> right. And then mm -hmm. and then they find they find a piece of something that looks like this piece of bear, but it's only 80 percent similar. And they say, oh, this is it. It's the same thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then without any further proof, um, it's a really strange thing. But there was really no evidence whatsoever of any virus um, in any of these people. And the experiments that they'd done, you, you basically could show, like do the, such an experiment with anyone who is sick and show this kind of a fake uh, or a fabricated virus. Well, if... Um, if you have a, a sudden rash of deaths in a certain r specific geographic location, mm. it would have to be something related to that local area. If you have, you know, the way that they say, you know, a virus, basically they say it's spread around the world, right? There are cases everywhere. But we didn't see that everywhere. We only saw that in a few discrete places. Like even in the United States um, during that time period when uh, this happened in a few discrete places and by the way my home state of new york was one of them um so if you compare like new york to california new york had something like almost twice as much mortality i think as the prior year during uh, a six or eight week period not for the whole year and california which had the same rate of hospitalization and and uh testing uh positive tests they had no uh, increased mortality during the same time period. So how could that be possible if they're affected by the same virus? Uh, because according to what they say, the virus determines the illness, not not any other factors. So what I think happened is that it's multifactorial and that you have to look at each geographic area where there was a surge during that. And these surges really only occurred during that discrete time period of April and May. And uh, several people have done good um, statistical analyses of these. Um, but uh, like in New York, I can speak about most easily because, you know, I'm, I know exactly what happened here. But I suppose there would be 
different reasons um, for what happened in Italy or Argentina or those few discrete places where they where they experienced this. The data on deaths, right? That's what we call epidemiology. It's a, a field of sort of social science where you can monitor these effects on a population's health. And but there's a lot of difficulty in getting accurate numbers in the first place. Mm. And so you can't draw any conclusions about the cause of anything right. from these kind of numbers uh, other than big questions. Like you could say, OK, if there's no excess deaths, then there's no new illness. Right. Or there's no pandemic. Right. Which is what we have for the aggregate year long data for 2020. But in these certain discrete places, right, taken separately, you do find this during this discrete um, time period. So, but that doesn't tell you anything about what the explanation is. You have to look deeper to get at the explanation. You can only generate a hypothesis. But a hy- if it only occurred in discrete places, but there was evidence that whatever they say this virus was spread everywhere, then that basically tells you the hypothesis that those deaths were caused by a virus is not good. <laughs> yeah, It's not a good hypothesis. You could throw it away. Well, I know that there's a major, uh, you know, uh, propaganda campaign out there. Mm. Um, so, but none of that is really based on scientific evidence. So I, I really just don't pay too close attention other than to know what kind of games that they're playing or what might intent might be um, behind it. But in order to say that you have an illness or a, a disease that's distinct from what we already know, there has to be something novel about it that you can reliably demonstrate. Otherwise, how do you know what is that versus what is something that we already had? Oh, but and I'll but, give but, you but, an a, but a PCR test, sorry, doc, but a PCR test that tells you what it is, surely. Well, it, uh, a PCR test is not actually a test, really. A PCR is a manufacturing technique for DNA, mm. but it's developed in such a way that it's it's completely meaningless because even if you say that it accurately shows the presence or absence of a certain piece of genetic material, right, which they say that it shows genetic material that's allegedly from a virus. Hmm. So even if it can show that genetic material, you would first have to show that that genetic material came from something that was causing an illness. And there have been no experiments that have shown that. Mm. So even if the PCR was an accurate test and way to do this, there's no way to know what it's representing if it's positive. So you basically can just toss it out the window. I mean, to develop a diagnostic test for something, you have to first know what the something is. And then you have to prove that that's what it is. And then that proof would be like a gold standard. Like, for example, you have a, a cancerous tumor. Right. How do you diagnose that? Well, you have to actually get a piece of the tissue, a biopsy and look under the microscope to see what it is. And that test is, you know, is the gold standard. But there might be another test like people might know of a test called the PSA test for a prostate. And, you know, men over 50 get this test to see if they might have prostate cancer. But this test is different because it doesn't show prostate cancer directly. So it has to be, you know, compared to a biopsy um, to say how accurate is it. And it's actually not very accurate, but it's um, that's why it's used as a screening test and not for diagnosis. But it can't be used at all without that testing. And the PCR and antibody tests that they have for this alleged COVID, they've never been tested like that. They don't even have a known error rate because there's never been a gold standard to actually show an illness. Mm. So really, it's just built all on a false assumption and is meaningless. And even the, uh, well, go ahead. You, no, 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 no. Ask. no, no, carry on. So there's no way to define it. There's, in fact, there's also no specific autopsy finding. There's mm. no specific symptom. Mm. Um, there's nothing to characterize an illness that sets it apart as distinct from illnesses in the past. And then combine that with the fact that you overall have no excess mortality. Mm. Well, then you have actually no prima facie evidence of a new illness at all. 
that there are excess deaths around the world, but they're caused by lockdown and other mitigation measures and not from uh, the disease or the illness. Right. Well, I would agree with that in terms of in those discrete geographic areas. Mm. And actually, um, he's one of the researchers that uh, uh, whose analysis helped me realize some of this. So so, you know, so I agree, like during those time periods in some areas, like in New York, for example, there was excess death there. But in the United States overall, there wasn't. Right, right, right. Um, so that's that's what I'm saying. I say in the world over, there was an excess death, mm. like which would if a pandemic means it's worldwide. Otherwise, if it's in a local area, it's called an epidemic. Yes. Right. And the World Health Organization's declaration that it was a pandemic is what set off all the lockdown policies. And it's very clear that the lockdown policies are the main thing responsible for any excess Correct. deaths and, and also other deaths because there was I think there was deaths were caused by many different things even though there wasn't an overall excess there was a shift like for mm -hmm. example there was a major increase in suicides and drug overdoses in the United States uh, from prior years you know it depends exactly what you're talking about so you know let's remember that mm. COVID-19 is the name that they give of this illness which is undefined and you know really no evidence for so if you're saying you know what are they recording on the death certificates that you know what's the real cause of death in those cases well you know you could just look at the secondary cause and like the cdc puts this data that you know almost all of them they have cancer heart disease strokes you know pneumonia essentially the same things that people have always died from but things are very different because there's very limited access to hospital and medical care because most hospitals are staying empty, like mm. to give the appearance that they're full. Uh, they're keeping people away. And also people don't want to go to the hospital because they're afraid of getting, you know, COVID or something. Um, so then you have all the economic hardship from the lockdown policies. And, you know, that that is long known to have actually like they even can calculate or estimate the death toll from from those things like for a certain drop in employment you have a certain increased mortality and you know some of those will be through like suicide and and drug abuse and things like that which you know we're seeing a, a recent study in the united states that almost doubling uh mm. of those numbers uh during 2020 i'm not medically inclined so you need to you need to speak to me like i'm five years old <laughs> That's that's totally all right. So um, and, and it actually it, it really is kind of that simple. Right. So if you know that, like um, what what biologists say about our bodies is that they're organized into tiny little compartments called cells. Right. And these are microscopic and they all uh, function somewhat independently, but also with each other. Right. They have a nucleus with DNA and lots of other things called mm -hmm. organelles and carry out all their functions. Well, one of the things that uh, is a, something that they do is called exocytosis, which basically means that they pop out some part of their cell off their membrane and make a little vesicle, or like an exosome is just one type of these. And uh, it's kind of like if you, let's say you had a water balloon, and um, imagine if a, uh, you like squeezed it in the middle and it made like two, and you were able to actually separate them and it would, they would stay intact. It's just like that. You can actually see bubble, like soap bubbles doing this um, in a solution. And that, that's exocytosis. And by the way, little particles can also uh, go the other direction and merge with the, the cell membrane, or so they say, and then come inside the cell, okay? So exosomes are simply a name for one of these little types of particles that comes off the cell and, and it's very, very tiny, like um, 100 to 200 nanometers, roughly, which is a, a billionth of a meter. So it's not something that you can see with a regular light microscope. You have to have a special electron microscope to even be able to see it. And interestingly, it's the same exact size, shape, and form as they say viruses are that cause disease. So... In other words, they're, in their own papers, they say it's indistinguishable from virus particles, that they don't know how to separate them from each other. 
But about 30 years ago, this branch of research started looking at, you know, trying to understand what the function of exosomes are. And they don't know uh, fully yet, but they think it's for communication at a distance. Like locally, cells talk to each other. But in order to like basically send a package or a telegram, uh, you know, a letter uh, across the country, you know, from like the kidney to the big toe or something like that, they would uh, send off this little package of genetic information and it would be like a letter and tell the toe, you know, to do something that would help the body. And it turns out that our cells put out a lot of these little particles when we are sick. And it can be caused by all these different stressful things like uh, being exposed to poisons, including antibiotics, uh, radiation, psychological stress, if we have an acute infection, an asthma attack, all these things. And when they do the experiments with viruses that they say is, is isolation of a virus, although they don't use the meaning of the word isolate to separate, um, they have their own special meaning for virologists only. Um, they create a cell culture under stress with antibiotics that would induce exosomes because there's other lab experiments they show put antibiotics with, with cell culture, you get exosomes. And then they show little particles on the photograph, but they're not separated. They're just budding off the cell or near the cell. And they put an arrow and they say, that's the virus. Well, mm -hmm. I just pointed out how do they know that's not an exosome? Because they know there are exosomes there because they created the conditions. And exosomes look exactly the same. Like you can find papers where they show pictures of exosomes and ones with the viruses, and you can't, you can't tell the difference. Um, and I showed that in my presentation. So, so that's what I realized is how do you know those aren't just exosomes? Mm. Um, in other words, there's no evidence of a virus. They're just particles of a cell that's in trouble, that, that's unhealthy. Is it that the medical scientific yes. establishment says a virus is? Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm doing. Well, what they say is that it's a sort of type of organism that can't live on its own and doesn't exhibit the normal properties of a living organism, like being able to reproduce or... Um, move like locomotion things like that but that it's essentially everywhere in the environment and in organisms and it uh, sometimes the, some viruses can actually become invasive or aggressive and they invade our cells make millions of copies of themselves by hijacking our machinery and then explode the cells and scatter, you know, a million fold. And then each one of those particles infects another cell and does the same thing. Right. And that's how it basically kills you. So according to that model, for example, if you um, took tissue from like the lungs of someone who died from viral pneumonia, where essentially those particles just killed so many of your lung cells that you died, Right you should be able to look under an electron microscope and just see wall-to-wall -wall virus particles. Because, right, that in order to, to conquer every cell and each cell makes millions of them, right, they would just be everywhere. But they, there's no studies like that where they show that. Um, and they've n never been separated out of someone who died or an organism that died of one of these illnesses. Um, they only have uh, what they say is the proof is that they take dying tissue from an animal or a person with a disease mm. and put it in a foreign cell culture. And then those cells, uh, because of they, and then add toxic chemicals, and then the cells of the foreign cell culture, not even humans, right? In most cases, uh, monkey cells, mm. those cells die. And then they say, ha, ah, that's because they died of the virus. But how do they know? How do they know what it, what caused those cells to die? They put in several toxic things, right? right. Rotting tissue, antibiotics, mm. uh, calf serum, you know, all these things. So how do they know what killed it? They don't do a control experiment to, no. to separate those things out. They don't, there's no way to identify 
the virus on a, on the microscope because it looks like other particles. They don't have like a specific stain or a label that they that only you know sh uh, show uh, turns only virus particles a different color. So they never actually showed that there is such a thing as a viral particle that causes illness. They Just, they had the belief that it was a thing before mm -hmm. there was any evidence, and then no evidence materialized, but the belief stayed. I mean, you can find papers where they actually say that this virus caused the illness and they give a reference and then you go to the reference and it doesn't say that anywhere in the reference. They're essentially just making it up. I show this in a couple of different presentations. So it's like a rumor that gets spread around and it's repeated so many times that it's believed. And that, that's the situation that we have. Look at how people think and understand things in order to see why people are uh, thinking that that's the case. Mm. And it's because, um, you know, our brains are very, very powerful. Like, look how much computing power it takes to beat a human in chess, right? <laughs> it's like the most powerful computer in the world, right? Um, and the reason is because we're very, very good at pattern recognition and in fact we're we're so good at it that we often see patterns where there are none or we're subjected to biases that lead us to see false patterns yeah and because of the uh, initial scare tactics and severe measures that have not really let up um, and it's been going on for a long time. So now we have experience of a year, a full year under our belt that we've been paying very, very close attention to everyone's health status mm -hmm. over that year. And it's always through the lens of pandemic because it's affecting every aspect of our life. I mean, you can't leave your house without seeing people with surgical masks and other kinds. Mm -hmm. So it's constantly on your mind. But ask yourself, are these people like, I mean, I've heard of a few as well, and these people were all elderly, and they all had chronic illnesses, and there was nothing unique um, about what the information I was given that would say it was different from any other, you know, year or anything like that. But there, there are differences in how the healthcare system is working. Um, you know, and there right now there is um, a wave of deaths going around from the vaccine, like especially in nursing homes. Um, so but that that's uh, only a very recent phenomenon. Yeah. So I wasn't really um, you know, I'm not denying that that uh, we hadn't really talked about that yet. Well, you know, like you made a really good point about the influenza deaths. And it's not just in your country. It's um, in, in the United States and many other places, too, that they just there were suddenly in this year like no flu deaths right and uh so obviously they just called those COVID this year because if there was a new disease it wouldn't make an old disease disappear you know mm, that would run concurrently <laughs> right? you know right just like you know um you know heart, deaths from heart disease also like went down considerably and how how could a virus cure heart disease? And I'm not sure uh, what decoding a virus uh, means, means. Uh, but uh, you know you'd have to actually look at the papers. And uh, mm. I've done an in detail analysis actually of a paper on the original SARS uh, virus from 2003 from Nature, um, and in that essentially they did not prove their claims at all through their mm -hmm. experiments. And so if you want to look at that, it's called the rooster in the river of rats. Um, it's on my LBRY channel and, uh, and my website. And that will explain, you know, the reasoning uh, where I show that these things are not uh, what they claim. So, you know, it's hard to kind of address that, but, you know, saying something is bullshit is not really an argument that no. actually side sidesteps a real argument. And, you know, the big the, the big underlying um, uh, way you could describe what the problem I have is that in order to show you have a thing that's never been discovered, that's a material thing, right, a physical thing, like like they say a virus is, you have to actually have that thing. Yeah, right. Until you have it by itself, you, you know, then what's the proof that it that it exists right. at all? 
And when they write papers that say isolation of this virus, they're not using that definition where it means you have it by itself. They, they have a process that where they've actually inverted the meaning completely of that word. And so, you know, if anyone has scientific evidence of a paper mm. where they have actually, by the common definition, like to separate from everything else, isolated a viral particle so that you could see an image from a microscope where all you see are viral particles, and then they can analyze it chemically and sequence the genetic material, I would change my mind instantly and I'll, I'll come on your show and every other show and, and mm. give an apology and a retraction. But I, but no scientist has presented that to me, and I've scoured the published research uh, as best I can. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, talking about definitions, even the WHO changed the definition of pandemic, I think, in 2009. Well, you know, also, like, there have been, you know, diagnoses that were cancer that suddenly were changed to not cancer. Uh, so, you know, uh, many of these are, are uh, certainly uh, subject to change over time within reason, but you're mm. talking about things that require more of judgment. Mm. Um, I'm talking about actually making something the opposite of what Correct. it really means. Got another question for you. Um, if it's not an actual pandemic, why are there so many sick people with similar symptoms concurrently? That happens every flu season. I mean, you know, like the the only difference this year is that everybody is paying close attention to what happens in all the hospitals. Mm. But, you know, like I've I've been a, a doctor for a while. I'm I'm not practicing allopathic medicine right now for the last few months, but I've, you know, had experiences in all hospitals, many states, mental hospitals, general hospitals, academic hospitals, rural community, everything. Mm. And um there's nothing out of the ordinary except that those hospitals are empty. Mm. I've never seen empty hospitals in my career. Um, usually I had to often wait for a bed to open up to admit a patient. So that's the thing that's really different. And that doesn't make any sense at all if we have more people who are sick. Right. So you need to like look at, at some not just, you know, like what you should observe during a real pandemic is people burying their kin in their backyard because the cemeteries are full. Right. That's what happened in 1918. Not that, yeah, you heard that someone's relative in a nursing home was on a ventilator. That, that happens every year. It's really difficult to talk about the, the true causes mm. uh, of the you know, Spanish flu um, because it's so long ago. But there are several um, really well-done studies of contagion that come out of that era and where whatever the illness was they uh, tried to have people give it to each other by taking their secretions like cough up phlegm and mm. and sneeze out snot and they even took tears and gave it to healthy subjects um, and they couldn't make anyone sick and they did it with animals too like I know for sure horses mm. um, you know, where they had the horses, they put a bag over their whole nose to collect snot for like several hours. <laughs> and, uh, and then they like put that on a healthy horse <laughs> to breathe in all that stuff. And they didn't, they didn't get sick because, because uh, animals also get flu, interestingly. Um, you know, I had more than one light bulb uh, go off, but there was, you know, a specific one about this virus issue. And, um, it, it was, uh, you know, a really interesting moment because I had uh, seen uh, Tom Cowan talk and I was trying to figure out exactly how to interpret these virus papers. I knew they didn't show a purified virus, which was what I expected. And, um, you know, but I'm like, what are they what are they seeing on these microscope images, really? And uh, so Tom gave this uh, little talk that was to a closed audience, but someone sent it to me. And um, he mentioned exosomes. And, and I had read about exosomes back when I was at MIT. And it just that it seemed to me when I heard that word that it was something of significance. And I almost thought that it, I'm like, that must be what they're seeing. Mm. And so I started scouring the literature, learning everything I could about exosomes and comparing it, and that's how I uh, came up with that original presentation. So that was really when I started to really understand 
what these experiments represent and how they don't show what what they're saying that they're part of that half of all published studies that are false and um and then you know that was obviously of utmost importance in mm. fact it's the central issue to understanding the true nature of this pandemic situation that it's all built on an untruth a falsity well well, herd immunity is a, a nice theory, but there's no evidence to back it up. And it seems that the scientific authorities like to keep changing the definition of it or when it's achieved or how it's achieved or what it is. Um, but it it's never been demonstrated in a population. It's purely a theoretical construct. And it's, of course, based on this assumption of viruses causing disease. And if that's not established, underneath as an underlying principle then you know you can't even really look at the immune system that way so mm. it's just something i think that like i think it was developed actually to use as a way to um, intimidate people who didn't want to vaccinate their children by saying that they're preventing vaccinated children from achieving herd immunity right yeah I, I, that, that's my personal opinion but um, it, it's really not a scientific concept, and all of the scientific writing about it is really based on conjecture. There's never been, uh, you know, a population that's demonstrated it. And um, you're talking about humans. What about animals? Same thing. Same thing. I mean, I, I'm not aware of it. You know, like, so first you'd have to show that there's some, you know, germ that actually causes the illness that you would be immune from mm. right and then you'd have to have a test for that and and then you know demonstrate that in a population to see if you know i mean it could have it could be through natural observation or um you know through a, a controlled experiment but you have to have something like that not a computer model or right. a theoretical idea the hospitals in my hometown were packed with COVID-19 patients. ICU beds were full due to COVID-19. I know that for a fact. Now, I mean, how do you respond to that? That seems very anecdotal. Now, it's it's quite possibly true that the ICUs were full. Well, you know, I mean, it, it sort of depends on what they were doing and where they were doing. Like in my home state of New York, they were um, skipping all the normal steps of giving oxygen and putting extra people on ventilators. So you had... Mm more people than usual on ventilators, but not because these people, like normally, you know, with a ventilator, you, the person is about to die, you know, or they can't breathe on their own. They're totally exhausted mm. from breathing problems and they're about to stop breathing, you know, and that's when you put them on the ventilator. Uh, many times they're unconscious. But in this case, they took people who are wide awake um, and had to sedate and paralyze them and put them on the ventilator. So it's hard to judge mm. by that, but you know, I don't know. I need some specific, more specific sure. information. Like yeah. What, and was this hospital full, you know, for the, from what date to what date? What, you know, what capacity was it at compared to its normal capacity? Mm. What about the uh, hospital surrounding? Like in New York, they made a big deal about this one hospital, Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, being, you know, overloaded and such. Um, but the thing is, it, it's a tiny hospital. New York City has huge hospitals with like 5,000 beds. This was like a three or 400 bed little hospital in the suburbs. All these other big hospitals were not, they were half empty. So why, you know, and I, they had people going to NYU hospitals showing that there was no one there. Mm. So why was one little hospital in the suburbs packed, but yet the big, huge hospitals that serve the area, which are, you know, the better hospitals, mm. <laughs> right, according to the consumers why are they empty so it's hard to say without looking at the bigger picture you know what to explain one particular but i do know like um uh in australia for example not because i there's plenty of evidence in the u.s but someone that i was uh um uh, personally associated with whose child had a sports injury and and needed an x-ray they had to like coerce the security and the administration to get into a hospital in a major metropolitan area and they said there was not one person in the radiology department getting a test now that is you know it never ever happens because the radiology equipment is really expensive it has to keep and, going yeah 
you have to keep going and generating revenue just to pay for it, you know, then not even to make a profit. So, you know, how do you explain that? Because yeah. having a busy hospital, that's a common thing. But having an empty radiology department, that never happens. I've got another question here. Um, regarding the, the theory of virology or virology, how did the idea come about that viral particles only contain part of their genome and that their complete genome is somewhere out in nature? I'm not even familiar with that theory, actually. Uh, my understanding was that the particles contain the whole genome, but I will tell you that they've never taken a genome out of a particle because mm. they've never had particles by themselves, uh, except with exosomes, they have done that. So they which, have the uh, technology. Out. Yeah, they like purified out the exosome particles and took their genetic material out and characterized it. We've gone over interestingly, time. Sure. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. I'm worried about you, but but do carry on. Oh, well, I just just want to finish that they've actually found exosomes that have, as well as human sequences, also viral sequences. Wow. What they say are viral sequences, but coming from our own cell, uh, not causing disease, but being part of us. Well, you know, parasites like things like worms, for example, or malaria, I mean, those things are known to cause disease. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the success of things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, you know, those, those drugs are for parasites. When I mean parasites, I'm talking about things like worms, not, not viruses, not, not things that are, you can't see and have never been seen, but worms actually have been seen, right? They, uh, it's well characterized that you can find worms in organisms causing disease, um, including humans. Um, so like ivermectin is a worm anti-worm drug and yet it's, they've been used for, you know, this thing that they, they, they're saying it's COVID, but really it's just a pneumonia. Um, or you could use other words. You could say, call it a viral pneumonia, a typical pneumonia, whatever. Um, but it's, you know, the same thing that's always been around. And of course they never thought to use a drug like that because it, it doesn't work on viruses. It works on worms. But out of desperation, some people just tried everything and they noticed these drugs work. And I think this is the reason they covered that up because it's been covered up in the US. It's many doctors are prevented from prescribing it like pharmacies won't fill it or the state licensing authority issued a directive. And so this is because they don't want you to know that actually parasites are involved in disease things like worms if viruses don't exist what is going on i mean in there are entire departments in hospitals in laboratories in yeah. books virology um if what is what is all of that then well in the united states um the vaccine industry is a 60 billion dollar a year industry and vaccines are almost all directed at viruses there's no treatment by the way, or a cure for any virus. There's some toxic drugs that they say are a treatment, but there's, there's no real cure for any of these viruses, right? So they keep doing research. It's a huge area where there's tons of money coming in uh, and they're justifying mostly, you know, related to vaccines. That's the biggest area of revenue, um, just like with the current situation um, and yeah. the testing. But you know, I, you know, I think that's a large part of what it's about. And that's why most of the of the people who are involved, but don't really know, haven't really looked at things, you yeah. know, there, there's job opportunities, you know, it's a way to make a living. And, um, it didn't, and it has the appearance that you're doing, you know, a mean, good service. If you realize that, that um, really, an illness like pneumonia is related to having excess toxicity in your body, mm. which worms come in opportunistically and other parasites when there's toxicity because they they kind of live in it just like if you let the trash back up in your yard parasites would come right you get roaches rats crows mm, mm. right all those kinds of things so that's what parasites are in your body and when you build up too much junk which comes from a lot of places at some point, parasites uh, take up residence and they can cause an acute illness like pneumonia. 
And the thing is, if that was known about, there are many natural remedies that are very effective mm. uh, for that, that you don't need drugs like even ivermectin. Uh, it may be effective, but you don't need it. it. It has toxicities. You have to get it from a drug company. You could actually take a pine tree and take the sap out and distill that at home and make turpentine, and you could use that. Or you could uh, grow cumin and take the seeds and, and press it into an oil and use that to treat it. Or if you're in India, you could use a spice called asafoetida, right? And all these things are inexpensive and readily available. And they would also be effective in treating people with uh, an acute, you know, seasonal pneumonia. Well, what is flu then? And I would say it's the same exact thing. How do you differentiate the flu from, you know, COVID or or from uh, another viral pneumonia? There's no accurate test. You just have the those PCRs, but they don't actually mean anything. So it's all really the same illness. Okay, but now like, you mentioned the, the truth sorry, about. Go on, go on. The, well, I'm just going to say the truth about what causes illness is really very, very uh, simplified compared to what they say that there's thousands of causes and most things we don't know what causes them. There's really only a few things that cause illness, and it's essentially toxicity, malnutrition, and trauma. Sure. And so every illness can be explained in, in, uh, in those categories, except perhaps for some rare genetic anomalies. Sorry, you're talking about the origin, though, because, I mean... Uh, back, like yeah, getting them, about the, the, root, the root cause the root cause so like pneumonia you're saying isn't necessarily from a virus well there's no evidence to support that it's from a virus so mm. it would have to be from some other cause um, I don't and, you know have the I don't have pictures of lungs with worms in them that I can show you either because no one has done that research right. but the fact that all of the treatments that address parasites are effective well that's pretty strong evidence that you're dealing with parasites dr andrew kaufman it's been a it's been an immense pleasure um i really Thank appreciate you. i really really appreciate your time um it's you're a wealth of knowledge and i hope that there are more people out there who would begin to think like you well i certainly hope that people not necessarily uh agree with me but but actually do think for themselves and try to look at this material objectively and see what you think about it. And, yeah. and uh, you know, that's really the only way. And, but thank you so much for, you know, allowing me to talk to a South African audience. And, mm. uh, you know, I definitely wish everyone there well in my solidarity and dealing with all of the tyranny uh, yes. is certainly there. Thanks so much. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, The Battle of Ideas.